Welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. Equipped with brain scanners and control groups, neuroscientists are pushing the boundaries of what we know about how we learn. And recent discoveries in the field, like the fact that learning styles differ greatly from person to person, could be used to improve current teaching methods. But there's a significant gap between scientific discoveries in the lab and the application of this knowledge to the world of education. With this disconnect in mind, the New York Academy of Sciences, in concert with the Aspen Brain Forum Foundation, held a conference this September meant to bridge the knowledge gap. Now, Science in the City brings you the inside story on how findings from cognitive neuroscience can be applied in real-world education, straight from the researchers themselves. You'll hear from Dr. Adele Diamond, a leader in the field of developmental neuroscience, as she breaks down why the brain may be more malleable than we think. She'll tell us how executive functions, those integral processes involved in controlling inhibitions, allowing for flexible thought, and maintaining working memory, develop in children. Then, hear from Dr. Daphne Bevelier, a professor of brain and cognitive sciences, on why shoot-em-up video games may not be as bad for you as one would think. And rounding out the conversation will be Vanderbilt University's Dr. Bruce McCandless, who studies differences in language acquisition and attention patterns in children and adults. He's found that there's far more variation in learning styles than previously thought. Hi, I'm Adele Diamond. I study the development of the cognitive control functions that depend on a part of the brain called prefrontal cortex. And collectively, those cognitive control functions are called executive functions. Diamond is the Canada Research Chair Professor of Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. She's one of the world's foremost experts on the development of executive functions in children, which include key cognitive controls like inhibition, working memory, and flexibility of thought. Diamond explains. Inhibitory control is, for example, the ability to stop yourself from doing something that might be your first reaction but would be wrong in the present situation, like putting your foot in your mouth or hurting somebody's feelings or your friends might be inviting you out or you might be bored or whatever, and yet you resist those temptations and you have the discipline to keep working. The second executive function is working memory, and that means holding information in mind and working with it. And that's important for anything that unfolds over time, because that always requires holding in mind what happened earlier and relating that to what's happening now. This executive function is particularly important in, say, reading or keeping up a long conversation. Anytime you have to remember what came before to understand the whole. And cognitive flexibility is the ability to be able to think outside the box. So let's say one way of trying to solve a problem isn't working. How can you come up with a totally different way of approaching the problem so that you can solve it? As you may imagine, development of these skills is very important for learning. In her lab in Vancouver, Diamond studies how executive functions develop in children, how they are influenced by environmental and social factors, how they become disorders, and how those can be managed among other issues. 
and to do this, she focuses largely on the prefrontal cortex, a part of the brain which, as the name suggests, is right up front, just behind your forehead, and it's home to the executive functions. Prefrontal cortex is kind of like the canary in the coal mine, in the sense that it's going to be the most sensitive. It's going to be the first to show effects. So if you're stressed, even mildly stressed, the first place you see it is prefrontal cortex. You can't think as clearly. The same is true for fatigue or illness, or even inactivity. If you're too sedentary, the brain doesn't work well, and neither do your executive functions. So Diamond and her team have been looking into what stimuli are most useful for engaging the prefrontal cortex and developing key executive functions. And when it comes to educational programs, what they found may be somewhat counterintuitive. Programs that include play, include physical activity, include recess, are better for academic achievement and executive functions than our school programs that just focus on academic instruction. It turns out that if you spend a little less time on academics, but help kids have more joy, help kids feel more part of the group, help kids get more exercise, give kids downtime so that they can process what they've already learned and get some of their excess energy out, then they actually do better. Diamond says that a lot of different activities can have positive effects on kids' executive functions, from aerobics to sports to music. Almost any activity can be the way in. It's whether you do it in the right way, you do it enough, and you enjoy it. Because if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to do it enough. So the advice I usually give parents is try to find something that your child loves enough that he or she will spend a lot of time at it, pushing him or herself to keep getting better. The key, Diamond says, is mindfulness and patience. Because children's brains are still developing, they often struggle with patience, which is integral for executive functions like inhibitory control. As Diamond puts it, children just don't give themselves enough time to wait. She gives an example from the Tools of the Mind curriculum, an educational style she points to as a front-runner for improving key cognitive skills. So young children will often do mirror reversal writing, where they'll write a B or a D or a P or a 6 reversed. It's perfectly normal. It's nothing to worry about. They'll grow out of it. But teachers and parents often get very concerned and might ask the child to write the six a thousand times or take off math credit for doing it. In the program Tools of the Mind, they don't get upset about it at all. They don't tell the child how terrible they are. They just tell the child that this afternoon or this evening, when you do your math, every time you have to write a six, put down your pencil and pick up a red pencil. That's all they say. And what happens is that by the next day, the child is no longer writing sixes mirror reversed. It's gone. And what happened was the child needed to pause before he wrote six. Though asking a child to pause and be mindful is difficult, Diamond says that the red pencil story is a good example of how to creatively get around such a problem. By giving the child a task to do, put down the regular pencil and pick up a red one, it gave him time to pause and think about writing the number six correctly. What they did is they gave the child something to do. So instead of doing the automatic response, which is to do it reversed, that would subside 
and what he knows is correct, which is to do it the correct way, would be able to come to the fore and be expressed. Along with Tools of the Mind, Diamond cites Montessori and the PATH curriculum as other programs that do well for executive function development. She says all of these programs share a common theme. In school curricula, those that address the social, emotional, and physical give more benefit than those that only address the cognitive. Of course, all of them need to address the cognitive, but addressing only the cognitive seems to be less beneficial. While executive functions like impulsivity control may be helped through activity, they're often thought to be hindered by stasis, and video gameplay often falls into this static category. But according to Daphne Bevelier, professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester and professor of psychology at the University of Geneva, Switzerland, even the sort of violent video games that are often seen as grade A brain rotters may provide some extra cognitive benefits for kids. So lately we've come across the fact that playing probably not what you think of as the most mind-enhancing games, basically action games or shooter games where most of what you have to do is to run around in corridors and shoot at enemies, that playing those games seems to have a number of beneficial effects on different aspects of what we do, how we think, how we make decisions. Specifically, she says video gamers were found to have better hand-eye coordination and better vision skills in general than their non-gaming counterparts. Action video gaming, she says, can have beneficial effects on both the precision of our vision, our ability to resolve small detail in clutter, and also our ability to see more faint contrast, which could be useful, for example, when you're driving in the fog. And the benefits may go beyond vision, too. Bevelier says that other studies have shown that action video games may have a positive effect on attention spans for gamers. They seem to be better at focusing on specific tasks and ignoring distractions from others. But to determine whether such positive effects are really a result of gaming, Bevelier says what was needed was a control. So she and her team didn't just look at the differences between predetermined gamers versus non-gamers, or to put it another way, those who choose to play versus those who choose not to. Bevelier's team also asked subjects to play different games, ranging from what Bevelier calls action shooter games to control games, which while still mainstream and entertaining, run at a slower pace and don't demand as much from the user. And we get them to play in the lab for like 10 or 30 hours over periods of days or weeks. And we ask people to then come back at the end of their training to test again Participants would be tested on vision, attention, and coordination skills, then play games in the lab, off and on. Then they'd be tested again to check for improvements. And while we can show in this way that it's truly a causal effect of playing action games, that is, those people that were asked to play action games show greater improvement between pre- and post-test than those people that were asked to play the control game. But she warns, don't run to your nearest Xbox retailer just yet. There are certainly beneficial aspects to playing video games, but we need to remember that a number of the training studies that we have done, we only trained for 50 hours, which in the lifespan of a kid playing video game is very few hours of video game play. So I'm not advocating for non-stop video game playing. There are many other interesting life to do. But Bavelier does think that aspects of action video games could one day be used to improve brain functions, especially with better targeted game development. 
Um, we are trying to do in the lab is trying to see whether we can actually devise games that would have educational content, but the pool and the attraction of those entertainment games such that instead of playing and probably learning about violence or aggression, you could play and learn about different domains of chemistry or math or physics. <laughs> so that's really where we're going with that, is trying to understand what in an action game leads to better learning and more brain plasticity and then use those components to create games for educational purposes. But you'll have to wait a while before those are made available to the public. Last, but certainly not least, we move to a different area of learning. This one, phonological. Dr. Bruce McCandless, the Patricia and Rhodes Hart Professor of Psychology and Human Development at Vanderbilt University, studies human brain development and linguistic functions with a focus on early childhood. And I'm especially interested in the ages where formal schooling starts, because children seem to gain new cognitive abilities through schooling, abilities that are the foundation of education. So I'm really interested in how brain circuits are changing during this age, how brain structure is changing during this age, and also how the learning experiences children are going through in early schooling may be modulating this development. A major theme of McCandless' work has been looking at how language learning and attention abilities vary by individual. And one of the things he presented during the Aspen Brain Forum was how neuroimaging research using fMRI and other imaging technologies can give new insights into this difference. One study, an electrophysiology study carried out by Urs Maurer, looked at how kids differ. If you just take a range of children who are in preschool or kindergarten and you look at how their brains respond to sounds of language, noticing a change in the sounds of language. Maurer's study showed that children's neural responses to different sounds or words actually vary quite a bit. But more importantly, it showed that brain activity patterns vary early on. By using this brain response in kindergarten, he was able to show that there was predictive information in this brain response about how children would go on to do later in their reading ability. So this kind of showed us an example of how neuroimaging or measuring brain responses can actually give us kind of a new and somewhat different insight into how a child will typically respond to reading instruction. McCandless says that insights learned from neuroscience also shed light on other areas important in language acquisition, like the impact of attentiveness on achievement. Uh, We did a bunch of research to examine how adult learners learning a new situation or listening to new information, how their brain activity changed if the instructor that they were interacting with focused their attention on different kinds of information. So in some instances, instructors asked participants to listen to someone talking and focus on the sound of language. Or they'd ask participants to focus on something different, like listening to the melody of speech. And in either case, different patterns of brain activation emerged. Just the act of focusing your attention on different forms of information seems to have a big impact on brain activity. And this is important for childhood education. McKenna says that some learning disorders may actually be symptomatic of different styles of attentiveness. It may be that some of the effects that we are seeing are really reflective of what children are tuning into or what children are attending to when they're listening to speech or when they're attempting to learn to read. And that means there's this tremendous opportunity 
for educators to find ways to focus children's attention on the parts of information that might be most crucial for learning. And it might be especially crucial for those with learning disabilities, such as dyslexia. One kind of take-home point that you might get from a lot of the brain imaging studies that um, we're reviewing right now is that some children who are struggling with reading may be struggling through the process of really thinking about the sounds of language and connecting the alphabetic symbols directly to those. And there may be ways of helping children to focus their attention on the specific connection between letters and letter sounds that could be incredibly effective in helping these children bring these parts together and integrate these brain circuits. McCandless says that neuroimaging studies may work to break down the misconceptions that individual differences in learning all boil down to effort. Instead, different learning styles may require different kinds of effort. What neuroimaging studies provide is sort of a new approach which educators could use to try to understand the individual challenges that learners are facing. McCandless hopes that soon, educational programs will use the information from brain studies to inform their teaching methods. From executive functions to vision and language, we've already learned that the brain is far more plastic than previously thought, and that learning does not follow a one-size-fits-all model. But that's only the tip of the iceberg into our mysterious brains. Cognitive neuroscience will have many new insights into learning in the near future. Zooming out, we leave you with a few words of practical advice from Dr. Adele Diamond. To both parents and teachers, she says, relax. Because if they're worried that they're not doing enough and they're not good enough and they get themselves stressed out, the kids will pick up on their stress and the kids will get stressed and stress impairs executive function. So you want everybody to relax. We would like to thank the Dana Foundation for their generous support and sponsorship of this podcast. Science in the City is a not-for-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us online at www.scienceandthecity.org or email us at scienceandthecity.nyas.org. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned till next time.